Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 23, starting in verse 26. And when you've got there, please stand for the reading of God's word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, laid laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, just, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. This is now the the second of four weeks that we'll be spending in the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And while we're slowing down during this one unified passage because of its redemptive historical significance, it's important to not lose the forest for the trees. Uh, The danger when we slow down through one unified passage of scripture is that we can often take points from individual verses and divorce them from the larger point, or we forget the one unified point the author is trying to make in the passage. And so before we dive into verses 32 through 38 tonight, just as a reminder, a refresher of what we talked over last week, is that the one point Luke is trying to make here is that Jesus in his crucifixion and death is the curse-bearing prophet, priest, and king who recreates access to God. And last week specifically, we talked about his role as a prophet, right? In which he goes and on his way to the cross, proclaims judgment on the people of Jerusalem for rejecting him as the Messiah. This week, like I said in verses 32 and 30 through 38, we'll be focusing on the fact that he is our priest and our king. 
And now when we say those, those words, those titles, uh, we're supposed to, as Christians, have a certain response. There's an association we should have with those roles of Christ. They're not just ethereal concepts that we know are relatively Christian, but we should respond appropriately when we hear those words. We should respond in worship. We should have certain things that go through our minds. It's actually a tangible role. It's a real role that Christ fills that we need to respond to. Uh, maybe a story to illustrate. One of my earliest memories was on Christmas Eve, I was really young, my brother woke me up and he said, Tim, Santa came early, wake up. And as you could expect from a young child, I was immediately very excited, right? I knew there was presents under the tree, I would get more Legos, um, because primarily I associated Santa with something, with a gift-giving, jolly guy that made me really happy because I got stuff, right? Now, if you said the same thing to a child from Zimbabwe, wake up, Santa came early, they would look at you very perplexed. They would not know what's going on. They would say, who's Santa and why should I care? Why? Because they don't associate Santa with anything. There's no joy, there's no presence that go along with the name Santa. Similarly, when we talk about Christ being our priest and king tonight, we need to associate that with something in our mind. And so my hope and prayer as we go through uh, this text is that we, we gain knowledge of what it means for him to be our priest and king. And it, it goes from ethereal to, to actually tangible. So as we look at the text, starting in verse 32, we read, Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So as Jesus is led away to be crucified, he's grouped with two others, and we don't know their names, but we know that they're criminals sentenced to death by the Roman authorities. And one of the themes throughout these, these couple chapters in Luke has been Jesus as the innocent one being associated with the guilty ones or being called a guilty one. And so here we see him being paraded up to his cross with two actual criminals, despite the fact that he's innocent. And more than that, he's placed in the middle cross with a criminal on his right and left, right? The middle is the place of prominence and importance. And so you see the Jewish leaders and the Romans trying to portray Jesus as the transgressor of transgressors, the guilty of the guilty, right? They're further slandering his name in this. And all this takes place at a hill called the Skull or Golgotha in other gospel accounts. All that is is a hill shaped like a skull where the Romans would crucify their victims publicly. But what's interesting about this passage, these first couple verses, is how little time Luke spends on the physical crucifixion of Jesus. We read in, in verse 33, there they crucified him. Four words. If you're a skim reader, you might just miss it, right? And you have to ask the question, why? Why doesn't Luke spend so much time talking about the, the horrors of a Roman crucifixion? They, they nail your hands and feet, you're lifted up, often naked, ashamed. You can't defend yourself against birds and, and bugs pecking at your exposed sin. You're slowly suffocating to death for hours before you die. And if you're anything like me, you, you've heard sermons on that, right? Where the, the, the sole focus of the crucifixion is on the physical agony of Christ. And that certainly is a reality. Christ suffered on the cross. But I would propose to you that Luke spends four words on it because it's not the main point of the text. We're students of the text. We want to major where the text majors and minor where it miters. And so, yes, Christ did physically suffer on the cross. That is a reality. But that isn't the main point. 
Because otherwise, what would happen about the plethora of martyrs throughout the centuries that have suffered actually a more physical, painful way of dying or torture or a longer way of dying than Jesus? Would we be left to wonder then that maybe Christ doesn't love us as infinitely as we thought because he could have chose a more painful way to die? And I think we can resoundly answer no to those questions because, like I said, that isn't the main point of the text. See, the text points us to a higher place where the, the seen, the physical, points us to the unseen. Namely, as I mentioned, that Christ is our interceding priest and our messianic king who recreates our access to God. So he's our interceding priest and messianic king. And we're going to spend the majority of tonight talking about those two roles and then get into some implications and application at the end. So first, his priestly role. We read in verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for those of you who have grown up in church, don't miss how astounding of a statement this is. That the first thing Jesus says as he is raised up on the cross is he looks at the people that are crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them. Think about the preceding couple chapters. Jesus has been taken captive, declared guilty in a sham trial, mocked, tortured, beaten, paraded around like a criminal. He's so weak from all of this that he can't even carry his own cross. And the first thing he does is pray for the people doing this to him. And there surely is judgment for those people that are rejecting him, as we talked about last week, right? But here we see the abundant compassion of our Lord as he responds to this great travesty, this great evil against him with great kindness. However, more than maybe just his compassion here, Jesus is showing that he is the better priest because he is interceding on behalf of sinners. Back in chapter 22, uh, Jesus talked about how he had to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah 53, which said that the Lord's servant would be numbered among the transgressors. And we certainly see that here where he is numbered among criminals. But the very next sentence in Isaiah says that the Lord's servant bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So not only is he numbered with them, but he bears their sins and then makes intercession on their behalf. This is a priestly role that Jesus is fulfilling. But what does intercession necessarily mean? Another biblical role, but, but let's just define terms. I think simply to intercede is to go between two parties and plead with one on behalf of another. So Hebrews 5.1 says that the high priest was chosen from among man and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So you have one party, the priest, going to God, the other party, on behalf of man, right? And so we see this primarily in the Old Testament where the priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And I think a prime example of this is on, on the Day of Atonement, where once a year the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice, bringing the blood of the sacrifice there on behalf of the people. So they're going in as their representative and they're exiting with the forgiveness that Jesus or that the Lord granted. They exited with that assurance, right? So they're interceding on their behalf. And we've already seen this a little bit with Jesus way back in, in chapter 22, one chapter ago, when, when talking about Peter's denial, he says, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He's already interceding on Peter's behalf. So here on the cross, 
we see Jesus as the high priest not entering into a physical holy of holies with the blood of bulls and goats, but entering into a spiritual holy of holies with his own blood, saying, Father, look upon me, my merit, my righteousness, and forgive those that are unrighteous, that don't have any merit. And in this, we shouldn't think that somehow the Son is, is convincing the Father to forgive sinners, but the Father really doesn't want to. And the Son has to sort of sell or have a sales pitch to get the Father to forgive sinners. That would divide the will of the Trinity, which we know cannot happen. Our triune God has one will. Rather, we should think of Christ's intercession as simply, as long as his bloody hands and bloody feet are in the Holy of Holies, are in the presence of God, we have a right to be there as well. As long as he stands in heaven as Christians, we know he is interceding for us and we can go there too because he is our mediator, our advocate, our intercessor. There's a story of an American missionary couple that went over to a country in Asia and they were going to live there a while and they wanted to adopt a child from that country. And so they, they went to an orphanage and there was uh, newborns there and as they were looking at the newborns out of the corner of their eye, they see this nine-year-old orphan girl looking at them. And this girl has lived in unimaginably hard life. And you can see this. She, she's nine years old, but she weighs 30 pounds. Her, her head is literally white from the lice. Uh, she has like a droopy, lazy eye that just sort of hangs there. And she has a worm in her stomach that when it gets hungry, literally comes out of her throat. She's the definition of undesirable. And the, the husband of this couple goes and lays his hand lovingly on her head. And she responds by spitting at him and running away. And yet the next day, the couple comes back to the orphanage and says, hey, despite her disgusting past and, and disgusting present, honestly, we want to adopt this girl. And as I was thinking about an analogy for Christ's intercession, you know, the first thing you think of is a, is a lawyer, right, an advocate. But that analogy doesn't work because the lawyer is probably in it for himself. He wants the money. He's not really for his client. And I think that the husband in that story is the better analogy. Because what he's doing is he's saying, daughter, what used to be your battles that you had to fight on your own, feeding yourself, protecting yourself, clothing yourself, trying to live a better life, I'm now going to take on my shoulders. All my resources, my attention, my care, my money is now going to be directed for your welfare. I'm going to take an active daily interest in your life. And while no analogy is perfect, I think that that best represents Christ's intercession for his people, in which he is taking on the battles that they could not win, but they are trying to fight in their sin, and he's taking on his own shoulders and saying, I will be praying for you. I will be interceding for you. Then, though, the question arises, who receives this beautiful intercession? When Christ says, Father, I, I, I pray for them, who is, who is the, the them in that? statement. Is it all people, sort of generically, university, or is it a specific group of people that Christ is thinking about? There are some who would propose that what Christ is doing here is he's offering universally, generically, in a timeless manner, this, this offer of forgiveness to all people, and they just need to accept it, right? It is not specific, it's general. And while that may sound appealing, I would say that if we just take that line of thinking a couple steps further, some problems arise. What do you do with the people that don't actually repent and believe? What about the Romans and Jews there that day that didn't actually receive forgiveness because they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ? Does Christ's intercession maybe have a success rate where 32% of the time it's successful and the other 68% it's not? 
I'd say on top of that, if it was a 100% success rate, you now run into a problem. Because last week we talked about Jesus prophesying judgment on the very people that are crucifying him. So if every single person there had accepted this universal generic offer of salvation, well, Christ would have been a false prophet because that judgment would not fall on the people, right? Because they are forgiven. They're mutually exclusive. So I would propose it is not a generic, broad intercession. It's a specific and effectual intercession. We've seen this in Luke. Specifically, Christ comes for the sick as the good physician. He specifically comes to seek and to save the lost. He specifically comes to save the sheep that has gone astray, right? And it's effectual in the sense that when Christ intercedes, it works. We'll see this in, in Acts whenever uh, we get to it. But in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, less than 50 days from this moment, 3,000 Jews come to know the Lord. They repent and believe. That Peter, in his sermon on that day, says, you crucified Jesus. That these are the same Jews right now that are crucifying the Lord of glory. They just don't know it. And on that day, 3,000 come to faith. Such is the power of Christ's intercession, right? He's able to take people that vehemently wanted to kill him and eventually turn them into worshipers. It's like, like taking a speeding bullet and completely stopping its direction and sending it in the other direction. That at the moment of greatest physical weakness on the cross, Christ is showing the incredible power he has to change the hearts of man. And if that is how Christ works on behalf of those Jews and Gentiles on the cross, how much more so now enthroned in heaven does he intercede on your behalf, Christian? How much more so is he now for you in every single sense? Does he look down upon you with love, praying for you when you can't even pray yourself, advocating you for the Father, taking an active daily interest in your life? That he is always interceding, not like the high priest who would just do it once a year in the Holy of Holies, but every single second you know your Savior is interceding on your behalf. And maybe, maybe you struggle to believe that. Maybe you say, well, well, I'm just too deep a sinner. I don't believe enough. I don't do enough. Well, think about who Jesus is interceding for here. These are Jews and Romans who are literally putting the Lord of glory to death. This is the height of human rebellion against God, right? To, for, to try and kill God is the height of human rebellion, and he intercedes for them. He can certainly intercede for you as well. And so we can take great comfort in Christ's intercession for us. That, like I said, every single second, he is praying for you. And so don't let your life be defined by your prayer life, but let your life be defined by Christ's prayer life on your behalf. We are fickle and very inconsistent beings. One day, we have a, a great day, right? We are, we are very holy. We hate sin. We pray without ceasing. It's incredible. And then the next day, if we're blessed, maybe the next hour, we are prayerless, hopeless, and we have no faith, and God's word bounces off us. If we try and define ourselves by how we're doing, we will be tossed and turned like a roller coaster, up and down. Rather, let us be defined by Christ's consistent prayer life on our behalf. That we know that on our best day and our worst day, he is still praying for us. And if Christ so prays for us and intercedes for us, we also ought to intercede for each other. Now, we don't 
intercede like Christ does, right, asking that uh, their sins be forgiven, right, and, and succeeding in that. But we do take Christ as our model in that the love and the care that he has for his people on the cross interceding and in heaven interceding, we likewise do for our brothers and sisters. Now, Christ's intercession was public, but ours is most often private. It is something we do in the secret of our rooms and the locked doors of our house, in which we spend time laboring in prayer for brothers and sisters. And the private aspect of this intercession is unfortunately why it so often falls by the wayside. Because it's not seen, there's no expectation of reward, there's no recognition we get for praying for people at a human level. But I would propose to you that because there's no expectation of reward, praying for your brothers and sisters is actually the deepest way you can love them because you will get nothing in reward at a human level again. Now, your heavenly Father will see that, but you won't receive any tangible earthly benefits in that matter. And so we're to prioritize praying for those, especially in the church, that we're in covenant with, that we do life with, that a prayer is often more effective than an hour coffee, and that spending time on your knees for brothers and sisters has way more positive effects in a lot of ways than the best sharing of a Bible verse or, or whatever you can do, right? I'd also say that in our intercession for others, um, we are to do it impartially. We have a tendency to really pray for the people that are only most active in our life. And that, that's appropriate, right? That's good, right? We should prioritize the people that we're most involved with. But oftentimes we can be impartial or partial in our prayers in which people must do enough for us. We must like them enough or they must satisfy something in us to, to make it onto our prayer list. And we see Christ praying for his murderers. We see him praying for us when we were still enemies. Surely we can look at the people God has placed in front of us in our life, whether the, the best or the most difficult, and we can pray for them as well. So whether it's a coworker who's difficult or a family member who you feel like has wronged you recently, look at who God has placed in front of you and commit to pray for them impartially and regularly. So that's the... the priestly intercession of Christ. Uh, now we'll, we'll move on to his messianic kingship. So picking it up in verse 34, we read, And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour, sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So there's a lot going on here, but I want to take it in one chunk because I believe uh, with all these details, Luke is taking a figurative megaphone and screaming at us that, that Jesus is the Christ, the king. This has also one, been one of the themes of the past couple chapters, right? In that Jesus very clearly through his miracles, teachings, and, and explicit sayings has said he is the Christ, the king. And how do the Jews and the Romans respond? They don't believe in him. They reject him. And so in a surprising twist, Luke is going to use the, the crucifixion of Christ to irrefutably prove that Christ's claims were true and the Jews and Gentiles' claims were false. And he's going to do that through Old Testament prophecy. And now we might look at this passage and say, okay, where's the Old Testament prophecy here? We see they cast lots to divide his garments. They, they mocked him. They scorned him. Uh, they offered him sour wine. They sarcastically called him 
uh, the Christ of God, his chosen one. And all of these, as we'll see in a second, are direct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And we'll look specifically at Psalm 22. But before we turn there, what's so interesting about all of this is that God uses in his providence the very people who have consistently rejected that Christ is the king to prove that Christ is the king. That his very enemies, they, they put a nice little X on the messianic map to show that, oh yes, actually Jesus is who he says he is. In a debate, if you can sort of prove your point over your opponent, you, you have the upper hand. But if your opponent actually proves your very point, that shows that you have complete and utter power over the debate. And so in a moment where it looks like Christ is out of control, actually the fact that his enemies are proving his own point shows that he is completely in control, which is, I think, just incredible. But uh, let's turn to, to Psalm 22. Keep your finger on Luke 23. So Psalm 22 is a uh, psalm of David, and it is directly fulfilled by Christ. And we won't read the whole thing, but I do want to jump around to a couple of verses to show um, the fulfillment of Christ on the cross and how it fulfills Psalm 22. So we'll start in verse 1. We read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is quoted by Jesus in other Gospels as he is hanging on the cross, not just pointing to verse 1, but really pointing to the entirety of the psalm. Jesus on the cross is, is wanting to direct our attention to everything this psalm says, its, its main points, right? And Luke, though, helps us by the details he included in this text, point us to specific parts of Psalm 22. So we'll jump down to, to verse 6. We read, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We see here again fulfillment in Luke 23, where the Jews and the Romans, they mock, they scorn Jesus. They sarcastically say, oh, if you're the son of God, save yourself. We see here, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. And then maybe the, the best example is if you jump to, to verse 16, we read, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is the most specific one. Obviously, Jesus being crucified has pierced hands and pierced feet, but we also see Luke writing that they divided his garments among them, just like David writes in Psalm 22. And so we could, we could do a similar exercise uh, to a lesser extent in Psalm 69, where the Davidic king is offered sour wine by his enemies, just like Jesus is in Luke 23. But we have to ask the question, well, why is Luke directing our mind back to Psalm 22? And it certainly is incredible that this psalm written a thousand years before Christ is perfectly fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. But I would, I would commend that this is the moment in which Luke is taking his figurative megaphone and saying, Christ is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. See, this sounds good to us because we know the end of the story. We're like, yeah, check, I got it, I'm there, right? But, but if we take a step back and we look at what's going on in Luke 23, it doesn't seem like Jesus is the king. He's on a cross, his disciples are scattered the enemy seems like they've won. 
Even his disciples, uh, later in Luke, before they know that he's resurrected, they say, we had hoped, past tense, that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Hoped. But now that hope seems lost, right? So Luke telling us that Jesus is the Messianic king, it, it somehow seems a little bit off. However, it clarifies the type of rule that Jesus exhibits as a king. It is a victory that he achieves through suffering. We've seen the suffering of the Davidic king here in Psalm 22, but if you jump down to verse 27, we read this as our call to worship. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. So the outcome of the suffering of the Messiah is rule and dominion over all the earth. Not just even the Jews. They're making fun of him. Oh, he's the king of the Jews. He will be the king over all the nations. And they will all bow down to his dominion. It's victory through suffering. Therefore, this passage in Luke, this is, this is a coronation passage. It is a coronation of Jesus as king that is inaugurated here and is consummated at his resurrection and ascension. And yet it, it's unlike any coronation passage we're used to, right? For most of human history, coronations were bloody affairs. The conquering king would kill all his political military opponents and their family to avoid any rebellion or pushback. In our maybe more modern idealistic minds, we think of a coronation ceremony similar to maybe from the Chronicles of Narnia, where Peter, Edmund, Lucy, Susan are crowned kings and queens of Narnia. And there's feasting, rejoicing, dancing. The white witch is dead. All that is evil in the realm has been destroyed, and only good remains. However, I propose to you that the real coronation ceremony in Narnia was Aslan sacrificing himself for the traitor Edmund at the stone table. When Aslan willingly endured death and was killed by the white witch, that is when the curse, the powers of evil over Narnia was broken. That is when all that was wrong in Narnia began to be made right again, when he offered himself. And obviously that story is based on the gospel. It's based on the Christian story of Christ. And therefore, that is why I think Jesus here is beginning his coronation as a king as well. And again, like I said, this is so opposite of what we would think. But the beautiful thing is because Jesus' coronation is opposite, as we would think, then his reign and rule is also opposite of what we would think as well. See, again, most human kings, the vast majority, are takers. They, they reign over their people and they take from their people. Possessions, money, family members, life itself, they use the people for their own benefit. But Christ on the cross is clarifying that as a king, he's, he's a giving king. See, we see this and obviously he's giving his own life, but it clarifies the type of rule that will, he will exhibit over his people, that he is constantly reigning over them spiritually and giving them all that they can need for life and godliness. He's giving them sanctification, a hatred of sin, an eternal hope. He's giving him us his Holy Spirit to reign over our hearts. He, he conquers us in a sense and then reigns over us kindly, giving us exactly what we need. Additionally, his reign is one in which evil is defeated. Paul talks about this in Colossians, but on the cross, Christ conquered over 
spiritualities and evil forces in this world. On the cross, through his suffering, he actually conquered over the devil. And that all that is wrong is being made right. It is a victory through suffering. Death is defeated through his death. And this pattern, that victory through suffering, will be the same in your life as well, Christian. I know many of you, uh, Max even prayed about this, are enduring physical hardship that every day wears you down, grinds you down, causes you to despair. Others have family members that don't know the Lord or you're estranged from, or others are dealing through ongoing sin that you feel like never can actually be defeated. Hope seems lost, but the good news is that as subjects of the king, our suffering will lead to victory. In that our very trials that we go through, they're not random, and only the Christian can say that, but only the Christian can have hope that we are actually being transformed more into the image of Christ through our sufferings, and that is our greatest good. And maybe you'll say, oh no, Tim, you don't understand what I'm going through. Good can't possibly come from that. Well, a coronation ceremony for our Savior while he's being crucified doesn't make a lot of sense either. And so your suffering might not make sense. And yet we are to understand that no suffering is meaningless. It is not pointless. And that we are merely following in the footsteps of our king. And just like he is resurrected and ascends, we will resurrect as well. And there will be a fruit of righteousness and holiness and eventual eternal bliss at his right hand, even despite the suffering. So we've talked about the who of this passage, namely, who is our redemption accomplished through, but Christ our priest and our king. But I want to talk a little bit about the how, namely, how is that redemption functionally accomplished? And to do this, we'll we'll take a, a step back and think about biblical covenants for a second. So at a high level, a a biblical covenant is a relationship between two parties with corresponding blessings and curses. So there's blessings for obeying the covenant and there's curses for disobedience. You can think of Adam and Eve in the garden in which if you eat of this tree, you will die. If you don't eat of it, you will live. You can think of the Israelites under the Mosaic law where if you obey the law, it will go well for you in the land. If you don't obey the law, you'll be kicked out of the land. Blessings, curses. Now, one of the curses we find in the Old Testament is this idea of revilement. It is a situation in which the enemies of God's people would see their sorry condition under the covenantal curse and revile them. They would see their their powerlessness, their helplessness, their oppression from their enemies, and it would almost be like a laughing, a mocking, a scorning. A couple examples of this, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 28, 37, we read, And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Or Ezekiel 22, 4 through 5, Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. Notice the the verbiage there, right? There's a a revilement. They're they're a proverb, a byword, a horror. They're mocked, right? And this is a sign of God's judgment on Israel when the enemies laugh at them. So whenever they are mocked, they're being judged. Whenever they're being scorned, they're being cursed by God under the covenant. And so whenever we see the Jews and the Romans mocking and scorning Jesus here, it's far more than them just speaking harshly to Jesus. He's actually taking on the covenantal curses 
on our behalf at that moment. We saw on a human level he's being treated as a criminal wrongly, but that same treatment is happening at a divine level in which the Godhead is pouring out the covenant curses that we deserve as lawbreakers onto the only covenant keeper. Last week, Jesus was the wrath proclaimer, right? In which he proclaimed wrath on Jerusalem for rejecting him. Well, this week he's the wrath bearer on our behalf. He's the priest who takes on the defilement of his people. He's the king who takes on the rebellious nature of his subjects, right? Where we deserve these covenantal curses. We have disobeyed God's law. And despite what the world and your flesh wants you to believe, we do deserve to be cursed like this. Jesus says, I will take it on your behalf. I will take on the curses. I will take on the pain. I will take on being forsaken by the Father for each and every one of you. And that is the how of our redemption. And so when we read here that they're mocking him, that is where our minds should go. And this was true suffering, right? In the Old Testament, whenever we read about these covenantal curses, whether it's famine, sword, pestilence, being spit out from the land or being oppressed by other nations, that, that should give us a dim picture. That's God's way of trying to get us to understand in a dim way what the wrath of God looks like, the weight of God's wrath. And yet it really is still unimaginable. Jesus sweat drops of blood, even thinking about it in the garden. And yet he endures on that cross. And yet he also endures through intense temptation. He was tempted to not fulfill his role, to not take on the covenant curses that we deserve on the cross. And if you look at it, verses 35 and 37 to see this, we see that both the Jews and the Romans say, basically, if you are the Christ of God, save yourself. If you are the Christ of God, get down from that cross, prove yourself for us. Now, what's significant about both of those sayings is that the only other time that verbiage has been used, if you are the Son of God, was way back in Luke 4. Again, you don't have to, to turn there, but in Luke 4 is the temptation of Jesus, where Jesus has been baptized, filled with the Spirit, and the Father has affirmed him from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. He is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to fast and be tempted for 40 days. And in that temptation, the devil uses this exact same sentence. If you are the Son of God, do something for me. Make these stones become bread. Throw yourself off this ledge that God may save you. It's the devil's way of tempting Jesus to deviate from God's plan and to follow the devil's plan, to bow down to the devil's will instead of God's will. That Jesus knew that the mission, God's will, would be tough. He would suffer. He would die on behalf of sinners. And so the devil is tempting him to take the easy way out, right, and not go down that path. And thankfully, Jesus resists temptation, right, in Luke 4. And we read at the end of that passage that the devil left him until an opportune time. I propose to you then that that opportune time is right now on the cross. That the, the same verbiage, if you are the Son of God being used, shows that Jesus was under intense temptation to not fulfill his roles on our behalf. And I propose that this is even a greater temptation than in Luke 4. Because in Luke 4, Jesus is affirmed by the Father, filled with the Spirit, right? And he resists. Here, he is forsaken by the Father. He is under the covenantal curses. He is physically dying. And yet he resists temptation, right? And so in this, we shouldn't understand, or we shouldn't think that, that Jesus had no other choice, right? That he really couldn't have gotten himself down from that cross and actually gave in. He could have. He could have called the legion of angels. He could have 
blinked his eye and he would have been off that cross and yet he remains there. And as humans, we have such, we have such a low capacity for suffering, right? We hop in a slightly too cold shower, we jump right back out, we try and exercise and a couple minutes later we, we quit. We, we just have a really low capacity. And yet Jesus as a true man hangs on that tree under temptation to quit second after second after second. And he does that for you, Christian. He does that for each and every one of you to be your priest and your king, to bring glory to God by obtaining a people for himself. If he would have got down off that tree, that would have been our destruction. And so he hangs there, enduring it on our behalf. In the Old Testament, the, the duty of the priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. The duty of the king was to rule over his people well. And when they failed, the people faltered. They weren't atoned, right, for their iniquities. There was no sacrifices. They had no hope. When the king failed, enemies came in and conquered the land. And Jesus on the cross by enduring temptation is showing that he will be unlike those previous priests and kings, that he will always fulfill his duty. He won't be an okay office bearer or one that gets distracted or maybe bored, that every single second he will be the perfect priest and the perfect king, and that for the rest of time we breathe on this earth and until he comes back again, the world will be ruled perfectly by Christ our King. The church will be ruled perfectly by Christ our King, and you as well will be perfectly ruled by Christ our King. He won't fail because he's, he's too holy. He cannot. I want to uh, leave also with one more, one point of application as we, we think about this text. And that is, you must take Christ as he reveals himself, not as you would conceive him. Going back to the beginning, we talked about the proper association we should have with him being our priest and king, our Messiah. And we have a tendency to not associate those roles with the biblical definition, but with really whatever we want. If we look at the, the Jews and the Romans in this passage, we see that they had a preconceived notion of what the Messiah should be. And when Jesus didn't fulfill that role for them selfishly, they rejected him. You see, the Jews, their preconceived notion was that a Messiah would be a military or political ruler that would free them from the Romans and create like a national Israel. So when Jesus rejected that, they rejected him. For the Romans, their, their only idea of a king was a mighty and strong, physically king. And so a king dying on a cross can't be a king, so they rejected him. Even the thief on the cross, which we'll get into next week, he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you're truly the Christ, you'll meet my wants. You'll get me off this cross. Even though I'm guilty, save me, then I'll believe in you, right? They're putting conditions to believing that he is the Messiah. And we too are often like that. Instead of taking Christ as he's revealed himself in scripture, we expect him to meet other extra biblical requirements. That unless I get this job or unless this thing happens, he can't be king. Or unless I feel enough in my soul, he can't be my priest who forgives me. Fill in the blank with whatever you want. We say, unless you do X, I will not worship, I will not obey, I will not follow after you. And so our faithfulness is threatened by this, right? Furthermore, we also grow embittered towards God because we hold him to expectations as our priest and king that aren't actually biblical. And so when he doesn't meet these expectations we've put on him that he actually hasn't promised, we grow embittered, frustrated, and annoyed. And so 
our solution to this, um, our problem and solution, is twofold. First, asking yourself, are you expecting what God has actually promised or what he has not actually promised? I think John Flavel puts this aptly when he says, it may be possible God did not promise the things you expect from him. You may have promised yourself certain things, such as prosperity and continuous continuance of those things you now enjoy, but where did God promise this? That we have to ask the question, has God actually promised what I'm expecting of him in his, in his word? And that we're not promised necessarily an easy life as Christians, where it's just happy-go-lucky all the time. But he has promised, though, to be with us and to support us and to encourage us in the fight. Some of our deepest disappointments and discontentments in life are from having expectations of God that he actually hasn't promised us. And the deepest contentment flows from actually expecting only what he has promised for us. The second question to ask yourself is, what are your true needs? In the West, we've been importing wants into the needs category for a long time, in which we now need a certain level of comfort, money, experiences to be happy. And as Christians, we can be affected by this same logic, where we say, unless I feel enough, I can't actually follow after the Lord. Or unless the perfect situation comes, I can't actually be obedient. We, we need these things. At least we convince ourselves that we do. However, biblically, while those things are good, those aren't true needs. What we really need as humans is to be reconciled to God, give glory to God, and to be reigned over by God. And that we need to be reconciled, forgiven, otherwise we stand condemned. We need to give glory to God because that's what we're made to do. And we need to be reigned over by God our King because otherwise our hearts are un unruly, right? They're, they're rebellious. And so if by God's grace we align our needs to how the Bible describes our needs, then we will see Christ as the beautiful Savior that he is more clearly, right? Instead of saying, unless you do X for me, I won't obey, we'll see that on the cross, through the suffering of Christ, he actually met all that we'll ever need. We are forgiven as Christians. We are reigned over by a good king. He's conquering our sin. He's leading us into holiness. Our true needs are met. Truly, we can say, I lack nothing with him. And so make sure your expectations are biblical and then make sure your needs are aligned to God's definition of your needs. And then we get to see that through suffering comes victory and that our priest and our king is reigning now on the throne, and we can rejoice in that and respond appropriately to the glory of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great are you? What a good God, far beyond what we could possibly imagine. Lord, that the human mind cannot fathom your immensity and your goodness, Lord, as you sit enthroned in heaven, as you are above all imagination and thought. And yet, Lord, we thank you for your word, which gives us a small taste of who you are. We praise you, Jesus, for coming down to be the, the walking and living word of God to reveal the Father to us. A God who delights to intercede for his people. A God who delights to reign well over his people and over the entire world. Lord, you are a God that responds to our rejection of you and our hatred of you with mercy. And I thank you, Lord, that we are assured of that as Christians. 
that when we are unfaithful, you are faithful. When we are wicked, you continue to love us. And I pray, Lord, that you would just fill us with the proper knowledge and response to you that we would know that more, that we would believe that reality more, not so that we can just feel better about ourselves, Lord, but that we may magnify your name and respond appropriately. So thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, that you are looking down upon us in love, attentive to our cries, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.